Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. Today, we want to talk about change. Change in the city of Detroit, the fast pace of change that we're seeing in some parts of the city, and how those changes feel, how those changes feel to Detroiters who have been here for their entire lives, how those changes feel to Detroiters who are just showing up and digging in. We want to talk about the idea of inclusivity. How do we make these changes in Detroit and make sure that everybody who is involved feels like they're a part of it? A little later in the show, we're going to talk with Orlando Bailey. He is the chief development officer for the Eastside Community Network about neighborhoods that maybe aren't on your radar, uh, places you may not have been here in the city of Detroit that are experiencing their own change and how we need to focus on inclusivity there. And then we're going to have a conversation with Conrad Kickert, who's an assistant professor of urban design at the University of Cincinnati and author of a really interesting book, Dream City, Creation, Destruction, and Reinvention in Downtown Detroit. That book takes a look at how we have reinvented downtown, uh, the central core of the city of Detroit, over four centuries, over nearly four centuries, I guess that is, uh, back to the 1600s when uh, the settlers, the first settlers were coming uh, to the shores of the Detroit River. But we want to start with Bedrock, billionaire Dan Gilbert's real estate development firm, which is doing some things to keep questions about inclusivity in mind as it helps drive Detroit's revitalization. Yes, you heard that right. Dan Gilbert's real estate development firm, which has been criticized in some quarters for taking an exclusive approach in downtown Detroit, is now intentionally focusing on the idea of inclusivity. Bedrock's second biennial Detroit Design 139 exhibition is now accepting entries for projects that are driven by an inclusive future. And this theme prioritizes best practices for making sure the future of Detroit's built environment is designed with everyone in mind. Joining me now to talk more about Bedrock's role in this issue is Melissa Detmer. She is the Bedrock Chief Design Officer. Melissa, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So let's start by talking about this uh, design exhibition, Detroit Design 139. What is that and uh, how does that focus on this idea of making sure everybody is included? So Detroit Design 139 is a a design advocacy uh, collaboration between City of Detroit, Design Corps, uh, Bedrock Detroit, and a bunch of other philanthropic, private, and university organizations. And two years ago, we kicked off our first Detroit Design 139. And basically, this was the first time that uh, all of the architecture, landscape architecture, and planning initiatives that were happening around the city throughout Detroit's 139 square miles was exhibited in one display in the 1001 Woodward building downtown. This exhibit showcased 41 different projects that were happening throughout the city. And what it did is it gave you a uh, one comprehensive picture about the projects that were being constructed or about to be constructed um, and showcased sort of Detroit's trajectory of the future built and natural environment. And it was the first time this had happened. It was quite awe-inspiring to see it all together in one space and then to create this uh, catalog of those projects afterwards. And what it truly showed was that Detroit was on a, a, a different roadmap than I think uh, most American cities towards the future. And so it was a great success. It was also a sprint 
of an effort just to see what this would look like and to showcase the value of having uh, design discourse with, uh, within the city. And so the same group got together um, about, let's say, a year ago and talked about, okay, how can we improve upon what we did two years ago? And so what we immediately did is we set up uh, an advisory committee for the group so that it wasn't just City of Detroit, it wasn't just Bedrock, and it wasn't just Design Corps um, speaking about these things and sprinting towards the finish line. Now we have an advisory committee that is composed of representatives from each of the universities in Southeast Michigan, uh, several different community organizations and community leaders, uh, CDAD, Design Corps, and various other groups. Um, so we have 13 uh, uh, advocates on that advisory committee, and uh, we basically make all of the major decisions together as those uh, lucky 13. Mm. Um, it's been really interesting to see the way that this uh, next exhibition that will go on um, during the month of September, um, how different this uh, exhibition is going to be from the first one then because one. <laughs> of this so uh, somewhat passionate discussion about what is important to everyone within Detroit's 139 square miles. Yeah. So so talk about uh, who are among these these advocates. Talk about how uh, how you've sort of broadened, I guess, the the perspectives at the table. Right. Um, so we have Joe Rashid, who's from uh, the uh, East Warren and English Village neighborhood. We have Akua Hill from Seadad, uh, who represents Seadad. We have uh, Alicia George from the Old Redford neighborhood. And we have uh, Anika Goss Foster from Detroit Future City. Um, we also have Maurice Cox from Planning and Development. We have Olga Stella but, from uh, Design Corps. But what this does is this rounds out um, a design discussion that is based in place mm. by having these community advocates there. Um, and so going forward, we for this uh, month of September, we not just have the downtown headquarters at 1001 Woodward, we have three different satellite locations. So we're expanding um, the actual exhibitions into three other neighborhoods. And then we're also expanding the discourse out into now this satellite of exhibitions and talking about uh, design strategies that are applicable to neighborhoods or applicable to different geographic areas. And we're trying to see if perhaps design strategies in one neighborhood is uh, more or less applicable than to others. Mm. And how does that change the future trajectory of those neighborhoods? So it's, it's, it's really interesting to hear how the east side, the west side, and uh, sort of the Fitzgerald neighborhood, how they're all discussing what's important to them in terms of de design strategies. Yeah. Uh, so uh, talk about Bedrock's position in Detroit's redevelopment landscape and how you think it sort of meshes with the people's perceptions of inclusivity. I mean, uh, I think we just have to be honest that uh, there's some people who are maybe surprised to hear that Dan Gilbert's uh, real estate development arm is focusing on inclusivity because in the past uh, you've been criticized uh, for the way in which uh, some of the things that have been done downtown have unfolded uh, for the, the feeling that a lot of people have uh, when they are downtown of exclusivity. Uh, is this uh, a sort of evolving uh, inside Bedrock? Is this uh, a change in the approach uh, that recognizes some of that criticism from the past? 
Um, well, I would say that Bedrock is uh, a new company, although not that new anymore. I mean, we're going on nine <laughs> years, say, almost almost a decade, a decade now. <laughs> um, and what we've done is through each of our phases, we have evolved and grown in our approach, um, evolved and grown in our development approach and our community engagement strategies and in um, our definition of what is good design. And so uh, what we're trying to do now is utilize the project, our City Modern project um, in Brush Park, where we established a um, extensive community engagement framework that was really uh, uh, evolutionary for mm. us. We had over 60 community engagement meetings throughout the three years of that project. Um, and what it did is it helped us understand uh, that we could learn a lot from the community members in place, both current and future community members in place. And it really opened up our uh, design strategies for that project and helped it become a much more successful project in the end. And that approach that we took with City Modern is something that we're now deploying throughout all of our development projects um, where applicable and and our uh, conversations that we're having with all design advocates throughout the city. I mean, this is this is a new model, I think, for development hmm. and is one that uh, we have embraced and want to take forward. And we hope that uh, that sort of transparency and honesty is something that is then embraced um, by the community that we are doing development in. Hmm. I'm talking with Melissa Dittmer. She is the Bedrock Chief Design Officer. Uh, we're talking about design and inclusivity and development in Detroit, not just in downtown Detroit or in midtown Detroit, where we're seeing really, really fast changes taking place in our city, but also out in the neighborhoods in the full 140 square miles that we call Detroit. Bedrock's second biennial Detroit Design 139 exhibition is now accepting entries for projects that are driven by visions of an inclusive future. Uh, we're talking about how Bedrock plays a role in that uh, idea of including everybody, making everyone feel included in the way that uh, Detroit is changing. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what you think about all of the development that is happening in and around Detroit, especially all the projects that you see in places in like Midtown and Downtown. Uh, do you feel included in the change that's taking place here? Do you feel as though your Detroit, the experiences that you've had, uh, the things that, that you cherish here in the city are being included in the way that it's changing? Or do you feel like it's changing in a way that's kind of pushing you out, leaving you to decide? Uh, also, who do you trust to decide what's best for the community when it comes to these questions? Should it be all of us? Or are there certain voices that should have uh, a louder or a bigger stake at the table. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we will work you into uh, we'll work you into the into the conversation. Um, uh, Melissa, I want to talk about some of the specific projects that uh, that Bedrock is involved in right now, and and ways in which uh, you feel like uh, inclusivity is maybe influencing them. Uh, let's start with the, the the skyscraper that is that is rising on the old 
Hudson site. Um, how do you how do you approach something like that from an inclusive perspective? So. I think what you're hitting on is um, a real fundamental concept to a lot of Detroiters is that Detroit, Detroiters and Southeast Michigan, Michiganders have sort of collective memories about uh, projects, about buildings, places. And ab- about places, <laughs> about sites. Um, and, and the Hudson site um, is probably the most dynamic collective memory for uh, anyone within Southeast Michigan. Uh, we... Many families have memories of coming downtown, being part of the Hudson site, um, and walking through the development store. They then remember uh, sort of viscerally the um, demolition or of this project and then the vacancy that has sat. And what's important for us as we think about this project is uh, embracing that collective memory that ranges all the way from the most positive to sometimes the most angry <laughs> uh, feelings about this project. Mm-hmm. And needing to design uh, the project, the uh, space around that project, and some of the spaces within that project to sort of embrace all of that history and then take uh, utilize design to allow people to move forward with a new collective memory of that project. And that's uh, been our approach with a lot of our sort of historically charged projects because mm-hmm. we have a lot of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, Detroit is filled with them throughout the 139 square miles, Um, whether it's our City Modern Brush Park project, which went through decades of uh, different moments through um, the other one, which we might as well talk about, which is the Brewster Douglas uh, project. It's another historically charged project Uh with uh, cultural legacy. And uh, when we do finally move that project forward, we want to do that so in a way that celebrates all of the history throughout that project and sort of embeds those memories probably within the public space that we're creating. Hmm. Uh, Talking about specifically Brewster Douglas, I mean, that's a place where uh, I think the, the, the kind of competing uh, visions of what's happening in Detroit really come together. This idea of uh, this site that was uh, when I was a kid and when a lot of people grew up here in the city, uh, you know, a housing project and a black neighborhood uh, uh, that's now gone and is going to be replaced by something that people fear uh, won't feel welcoming to poor people or to African Americans. How do you, how do you, sell the idea that what's happening there is good, not just for Bedrock and not just for people in downtown Detroit, but for all Detroiters? So we've spent a lot of time thinking about this. um, And we, uh, going forward, I think we're going to utilize our city modern community engagement process, but uh, uh, blow it out and make it even larger. Because it's not just, it's an interesting site because there's no one that lives there anymore. And so we can't just go around and bring together uh, the residents that surround that community, mm-hmm. bring them together and talk about the, the future of that project. But we also need to have a citywide conversation uh, um, and try to bring in the stories and the people who have memories of that site and have a conversation with them about um, the importance of that site and then uh, make sure that we design accordingly to embrace that importance. And so... It's going to be um, an extensive community engagement uh, 
framework for mm-hmm. that project. And we're still trying to figure that out because it has such historic legacy. And we want to make sure that we uh, express the importance of that. Mm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Julia in Detroit. Julia, welcome to Detroit yes. today. You there? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, uh, I have been trying to uh, get a particular area of you know, a little playground or something so that children and families who are very, very poor and a lack of education also, but uh, that doesn't uh, shouldn't mean that they are totally overlooked yeah uh, Julia what what area of the city are you uh, are you focusing on uh, the area around Grand River Myers and um, in fact about it there's a big lot well about five different lots and um, three four family flats on the lot that's totally disappeared for over 30 years I've been right into various mayors, starting from <laughs> Dennis Archer, hmm. about this area, that they can make a playground to make the ch- have the children something nice to uh, look at yeah. and play in. You yeah. know, they have to play ball in the streets. Yeah. Julia, I, I really appreciate the call and that perspective. I, I can say uh, from my own experience here in the city and uh, the neighborhoods where I lived, either as a kid or am, uh, am doing things now, I, I, I have that same concern, that same anxiety about the loss of places for children in particular to, uh, to play and, and to sort of enjoy the city. Um, Melissa, that, that, that's, that stands in a little bit of contrast from the kinds of things that Bedrock focuses on in downtown Detroit. But I, I actually want to stress that I think they're connected, that that this idea of creating better space for people outside of downtown is one of the things that we all need to be focused on, even as we try to revitalize, you know, the city's central business district. So one of the things that's really uh, impressive about working in the Dan Gilbert family of companies is that it usually takes a couple of years, but then you figure out how to tie the threads together between the different companies. And so one thing that um, I've been working on uh, with the head of QLCF, the Quicken Loans Community Fund, is to figure out how we can start to um, deploy design uh, advocacy strategies across uh, the different neighborhoods that QLCF is also uh, working within. And so something that uh, Laura Graneman and I have been discussing for next year is uh, potentially ways in which we can deploy um, design advocacy dollars out into the neighborhoods to talk about uh, whether it be affordable housing or public spaces connected to affordable housing and how that then ties into different neighborhoods, Mm -hmm. um, is to expand this conversation ever out um, into more and more of the neighborhoods and more and more of the square miles around the city. So that would include things like public space and playscapes and other ways in which we can start to design comprehensive neighborhoods um, in partnership with uh, potentially city of Detroit uh, leaders and other philanthropic leaders. Yeah. Okay. Melissa Dittmer, Bedrock Chief Design Officer. It was really great to have you here uh, to talk about uh, these issues in Detroit. Also, uh, where can people find out about Detroit Design 139? Well, it's a very simple website at Mm DetroitDesign139.com. We are accepting applications now through June 30th. Um, And I want to stress that 
anyone can submit a project. So you don't need to be employed within the design realm. You could be community leaders. You could be um, a resident of the city. Uh, as long as you go onto the website and fill out the application and submit some images of your projects, um, those projects will be considered by uh, the jury and then could potentially make its way into one of the four exhibition spaces. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it was really great to have you here, and uh, good luck with all of uh, what you're working on. Thank you very much. All right. Up next, we're going to talk about what's happening outside of Detroit's city core to make sure development and investment are equitable in the city's low-density neighborhoods. Also, remember to come back tomorrow. We are going to talk with Attorney General Dana Nessel uh, about her filing on behalf of Detroit students in a lawsuit that says they are being deprived of their right to literacy. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. We're talking this hour about the change that is unfolding in the city of Detroit, not just in downtown and midtown, but in neighborhoods across the 140 square miles that we think of as the city of Detroit. How does that change affect things like inclusivity? How does it affect the way that people who have been here their entire lives feel about their city? How does it affect people who are new to Detroit, just becoming Detroiters? How do they feel about being included or excluded from things that happen in the city. We just heard from Melissa Dittmer, who's Bedrock's chief design officer, about some interesting things that Bedrock, uh, Dan Gilbert's uh, real estate development firm, is actually doing uh, to try to focus on inclusivity in the things that it's doing in downtown Detroit and other places. Now we want to sort of turn to another facet of this conversation. Orlando Bailey is the chief development officer for the Eastside Community Network, a really important uh, agency here in the city of Detroit focused on uh, not just development, not just change, but I want to say growth, personal growth, investment in human growth uh, in, on the east side of the city. Uh, Orlando, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Yeah. I'm happy to be here. So so I, I want to start in a little bit of a different place with you, and we're, we'll get to some of the things that, that you are really focused on uh, in your work. But I, I want to get you to react to some of the things that Melissa Dittmer was saying about Bedrock and downtown Detroit uh, some of the things that it's doing uh, in downtown, some of the things that it's doing in places like Brewster Douglas, uh, a place of great cultural and historical significance here in the city of Detroit. Uh, as somebody who works in neighborhoods uh, with Detroiters in neighborhoods, uh, are you are are you buying the idea that developers, big developers like Dan Gilbert or the Illiches, are a critical part of uh, of the things that that matter in in your work are they are they inclusive enough of the people that you work with every day uh, to 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 really play the role that we need them to? Well, I I, I think they're beginning to 
realize how important it is to be inclusive and to be community minded. Uh, Quicken Loans, the community fund launched the neighbor to neighbor program to help folks uh, apply for property tax exemptions. So I believe that they're listening and they have some good people over there in, in Laura Graneman and uh, some other folks over there. I think uh, what has to happen, and they're not a new company. I don't know why they said they were new. They're not. They're not a new company. They've been at this for a while. I think what has to happen is the realization of people's uh, affinity and attraction to physical space. So, in addition to, uh, you know, how how we're feeling, and we could talk about inclusivity and how development can happen exclusive of black and brown people in this city when we are the majority. That that doesn't that seems purposeful when that happens in this city because we are majority people of color city. Yeah. And so when we talk about when we talk about inclusivity, it suggests to me really a power dynamic and a revitalization or development happening absent of the majority of folks who have been here. But I think they have to hone in and realize uh, people's affection and trauma behind physical space, especially around a project like the Brewster Douglas projects, even though nobody quote unquote is there, uh, people are still uh, affected by what happens uh, to that space. Uh, you know, and, and, uh I didn't grow up in Brewster Douglas, but I did grow up going to the rec center there. Mm -hmm. It was the gym for the school that I went to uh, in elementary school. That's where I, uh, I started to learn to swim. That's where I yeah. learned to play floor hockey. You all started these to learn to swim. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I didn't finish there, but I started at Brewster Douglas. But, but I mean, the, the number of people, I think, who have some connection or some memory to that place, especially African Americans of, mm -hmm. of my generation, is is overwhelming. I mean, it's a big part of uh, of, of what the city was at yeah. that time. Diana Ross. I mean, er yeah, everyone right. everyone goes straight to her. So I think that uh, people who have that connection, people who are closest to her, are also people who may have the answers, the design answers of what it should be and what it should become. And I think we need to figure out, I think Bedrock needs to uh, be in the position to figure out how to harness that power and how to leverage that power. They have a lot of power and they have resources behind that power. But people who are connected to this physical space have an expertise, knowledge base and power that should also be honored uh, when we're talking about designing and developing spaces. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about uh, the neighborhoods where you're working and what's going on there and how it might look uh, the same in terms of the questions that are being asked, in terms of the things that we're thinking about to what is going on downtown and how it might be different. Yeah, so the uh, Eastside Community Network, we focus uh, primarily on the Lower East Side of Detroit. One of the neighborhoods that we've been working in since last year is the McDougal Hunt neighborhood. Uh, the flagship uh, 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 project in McDougal Hunt right now is the Heidelberg Project. So just to give people some context mm -hmm. as to where McDougal Hunt is, it's sandwiched in between Lafayette Park, Eastern Market, and the Island View Villages, right? So you have a lot of these positive adjacencies, but this is a neighborhood that has been hit hard by systematic divestment 
and uh, property tax foreclosures, right? So there is a tremendous amount of open space in this small area, uh, but we believe that there is a tremendous amount of opportunity. There's still some residential stock. And so ECN, what we like to do is not go in uh, and make decisions for residents, but we like to co-create with residents. So honoring, once again, that expertise and that power that residents have being so close to the issues that we are trying to solve. Um, as a part of the Place Lab Fellowship with the Astor Gates last year, one of the ethical redevelopment principles was platforms. Mm. How do we provide platform for people to express their expertise, uh, be compensated for it in some instances, <laughs> <laughs> and to express that power? And so that's really our approach in all of the neighborhoods that we work in. Chandler Park is another one um, that is not... Um, targeted by the powers that be. And it may be a gift to us because we have the opportunity, number one, to address things that may be outside of the scope of bigger power structures that exist when they bring their money and resources. And uh, residents have the opportunity to explore. I think the absence of millions and millions of dollars breeds innovation <laughs> and change. And so Necessity, we've, been able, right? yeah, we've been able to see that um, in McDougal Hunt and specifically in Chandler Park. So, so when you talked to people in those neighborhoods, um, I mean, they can see what's going on right around them. They can see what's going on in downtown, in Midtown, and they can see that it's not happening where they live. What's what's their take on all of this? Are they excited about it? Are they concerned? Are they anxious that uh, that in some ways they're being left out? Uh, what, what do they tell you? Well, I think we have to, number one, acknowledge that there is an economic barrier for some residents to even get downtown into Midtown to sure. take advantage of some of the amenities that exist. There is a sentiment of why have we been continuously left out? But there's also this uh, this resilience and this spirit to, okay, if we're going to continue to be left out, let's organize ourselves and try to fundraise and bring in resources to do some of the things that we want to do. So uh, really sandwiched in between uh, Mac Avenue and I-94 and St. Jean and Van Dyke, this is an area that is void of any kind of uh, community development advocacy organization, but you have significant resident leaders on the east side, people with master's degrees who work for former mayors, and they came to us and like, we tired of being ignored. <laughs> you all are ignoring us too. We need y'all to help us figure something out. And they formed a coalition, a group group of resident leaders formed a board they're going to be incorporating this year and they put a name on their neighborhood there's like this we're not any we're not nobody we are here we're here to stay we pay our taxes and we have good stock and so they call their neighborhood good stock detroit and what ecm was able to do was really facilitate uh, the uh, the capacity for those residents to be able to, number one, advocate for themselves, right? And so one of the things that we try not to do, Stephen, is be a gatekeeper mm. of information and pass down information, but really be a facilitator where people can come to the table with power <laughs> and get answers themselves. And so we don't claim to speak for or represent residents, but really providing them the platform. It's giving them the ability to, to speak, speak for themselves. and advocate for themselves. Yeah. Yeah, It's not rocket science. My guest is Orlando Bailey. He's the chief development officer at the Eastside Community Network. We're talking about the changes, the rapid changes that are happening in Detroit, not only in downtown and midtown, but also in all of the neighborhoods, really, across uh, the city. We're talking about how inclusive 
those changes are, how much attention is being spent to making sure that everybody who lives here in Detroit or works here or recreates here feels like they're a part of what's happening. Uh, as always, the number on the phones, if you want to join the conversation, is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. Uh, and let us, uh, we'll try to get you into the conversation that way. Uh, let us know what you think about what's happening in Detroit, maybe in your neighborhood, uh, place where you live, how much change is happening there, and, where, and do you feel like that change is happening uh, as part of your life or as a way of changing your life from the outside? Mm-hmm. Uh, also, let us know what you think about what's going on in downtown and midtown, all the changes there. Do you feel like that is as inclusive as it should be. Let's go to uh, Luis in Detroit. Luis, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks, Stephen. Um, Long-time listener. I called in uh, about a year ago because I have a project (laughs) in uh, the Brightmore community. Okay. Um, My house, um, it's almost ready, so I'm excited about that. But I got to tell you, one of the things that is is, uh, very important that we have to consider is not just making something, creating something from scratch, mm-hmm. but actually looking for the system that's going to preserve it and being inclusive along the way. Mm. I, I got to tell you, you know, with my house, you know, a simple example, a roof leak. You know, I've been on this project for two years and all of a sudden I have a roof leak. Mm. You know, when it comes down to the projects within the city, um, you know, grass cutting, or you create something and then all of a sudden starts falling apart. I think that's the perfect opportunity for the people from within the community to have pride in, in what they have, you know, next door. And, uh, you know, putting those resources not only to create something, but also to preserve it. Mm. Wow, uh, Luis, that's a really, that's a really important point. Uh, and I'm glad you called. Uh, to make it. Uh, Orlando, if you think about the situation we have in Detroit now, and in a lot of ways, it's it's true because we didn't do what Luis is talking about for so many years. And and like him, I guess I worry that, that as we uh, reinvest in some things and, and try to make things better, that uh, maybe we haven't learned our lessons. (laughs) Maybe we're going to repeat the same error and we'll be in the same situation 20 or 30 years from now. Yeah, so sustainability is is a huge thing. And I I am uh, of the mindset that if the people, our folks, our residents, our our stock are not included, um, how can anything be sustainable? So we have a sustainable focus. Actually, our mission says that we develop people, places, and plans for the sustainable growth of Detroit's east side. And so really looking at our natural resources, our built resources, and our human resources, and harnessing that for the social inclusive well-being of everybody. So not just working toward the rollout of a project, but how is that project going to be sustained? How is this space going to be programmed? Who's going to do it? Who who are we asking to do it? Are we paying them to do it? So one of the trends that I see that really just gets on my nerves is, okay, we get all these resources and we open up something, we open up a physical space and then we're going to turn it over to the residents to, you know, keep it up and to program it. Well, that's 
takes resources and money and who's talking about that? We didn't do it for free. I'm a professional. I get paid to do what I do. (laughs) And so I think we have to have that conversation, too, about sustainability. That's how things last. Uh, Pay people. And that's well, that's uh, that's a that's one important way to do that. But but I I also feel like um, sustainability takes on some different kinds of dynamics in neighborhoods and in poor neighborhoods than it does in places where there are lots of resources. I mean, because those resources are are, are more scarce, uh, it, it's it's more important to spend them in a way that makes a bigger difference over a longer period of time. I think so. I think so. We were having a conversation yesterday about uh, displacement and eminent domain and liking and, and talking about the mayor's speech in Mackinac. And he was sort of making this plea uh, to the corporate community to invest in Detroit because we have the abundance of, you know, vacant land while still touting, um, you know, we're going to continue to demolish and demolish and demolish. I think that if we're not careful, that can be a a slippery slope because we have to begin to look at, especially in poor transient neighborhoods, what is symptomatic before demolition happens, right? Uh, we don't, we're not dealing with eminent domain in the city of Detroit right now, but we're in the midst of a property tax foreclosure that is outright displacing residents yeah. and uh, people are being priced out um, in, in certain areas uh, that cause this amount of vacancy in open space. What are we doing to fix those systems? So I think it, sustainability is as much as a systems issue uh, as well as one that the practitioners who are doing development and design work need to pay attention to. Yeah. Uh, again, thanks very much for the call uh, and the comments, Luis. Let's go to uh, Eugenia in Detroit. Eugenia, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Hi. My concern is for um, the homeless in Corktown, in the Corktown area. Um, my husband and I work at Mana Soup Kitchen. We're volunteers. We're not paid staff. And <laughs> we've been volunteering um, there at, at the soup kitchen for over 20 years. Um, uh, the soup kitchen is under the direction of Father Tom Lumpkin, mm-hmm. and it's housed at St. Peter's, which is on the corner of Michigan and Trumbull. And we have a project going on right now. We're building showers and a laundry a service for the homeless there. And we've been raising money for several years to get this project completed. But people are saying to me, um, we're investing this money in, in this church and what's going to happen with what's going on in Corktown. Sure. Are these people going to be able to remain there? Um, and that's my really big concern. Wow. Uh, What's going to happen? To if, if, for instance, in I mean, yeah, I mean, if, for instance, that soup kitchen is not able to stay there or permitted to, I guess, uh, what what would happen to the people who who count on it? Uh, Orlando, that's a question that I think we face in a lot of neighborhoods right now, where uh, again, the pace of change, the nature of change, threatens things that are not just. Um, affinities that we have attachment to, but but necessities. I mean, the, <laughs> yeah. the idea of a soup kitchen in in a neighborhood like that, where there are a lot of people who need it, um, you know, how do we how do we protect those things? I guess while we also kind of uh, welcome the idea of opportunity, uh, moving a, a neighborhood in a different direction. I mean, preservation is 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 huge, and I think we have to continue to advocate for resources for. 
uh, places like the church and the soup kitchen. I mean, we're located right across from Capuchin Soup Kitchen, and we see folks get breakfast and lunch every day in droves. So we recognize uh, that there is a need. Somewhere along the early 90s when John Engler and was in power and Bill Clinton was in power, a lot of the social services that our homeless population and our most vulnerable population relied on went away. So how are we uh, holding accountable the people that we elect to address these issues, right? Uh, I do believe that it is government's job to house and to preserve the most vulnerable among us. So our I, I don't think I've heard Governor Whitmer talk about the homeless population. Let's start having that conversation. Let's start having that conversation at the at the municipal level. Let's start having that conversation at the legislature. And so you posed a question earlier about who gets to decide about mm-hmm, things mm-hmm. and who gets to decide and make the decisions around divi- design and development. And I think we elect people to make decisions with us, not always for us. And there's an opportunity every few years or so when we are not satisfied with how decisions are being made for us to change that mm-hmm. and for us to push the conversations that we want to have. And so it's, 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 it, it is indeed a problem and we need to continue to advocate for resources around housing our most vulnerable uh, in not yeah. affordable housing, because I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but in sustainable housing. In sustainable that, housing. Right? <laughs> uh, a situation that's not as precarious as uh, what they had before and, and, and may be lost. Yes. Uh, I mean, that's what, we're, we're not we're not having that conversation about neighborhoods in yeah. Detroit and the people. Not at a broad around. level. Yeah. Not at a broad level. Yeah. And we, um, we, we, you know, going in neighborhoods where there is a homeless population and talking to neighbors who are housed, uh, I think that there is a, a mindset shift that has to take place when we uh, think about our homeless and most vulnerable population. Um, it's not a. <laughs> I don't think anybody chooses to be homeless, and I think we have to take into account the the systematic and structural inequities uh, that leads people to live on the street. You know what I mean? And so I think we have to begin to change our perspective about homeless people, our perspective about the policies, intentional policies that have driven, um, driven that that symptom. So. Yeah. Okay, Orlando Bailey, Chief Development Officer of the Eastside Community Network. It was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming in. All right, up next, we're going to talk with a Cincinnati urban designer who authored a new book about Detroit and how its built environment is contributing in good and bad ways to the city's reinvention. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. We're talking this hour about change in the city of Detroit, the rapid pace of change, the rapid way in which those changes are affecting those of us who live here. And we're talking about it from the perspective of inclusivity. Who belongs in the new things that are being created in Detroit? Who feels like they belong uh, in these new spaces? And who maybe feels like they are being pushed aside, that their lives are not being recognized by the change, the, the, 
the pace of change, the, the dimensions of change. Um, as always, uh, we want to hear from you this hour, 313-577-1019, about what you think about those changes, where you see them taking place, and whether you feel as though you are a part of them. Uh, we also now want to welcome to the conversation Conrad Kickert. He's an assistant professor of urban design at the University of Cincinnati, and he authored a book called Dream City, Creation, Destruction, and Reinvention in Downtown Detroit. Conrad Kickert, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks very much for hosting me. Yeah. Thanks very much. Now, I mean, Go I ahead. think the topic of change uh-huh. that, that you're bringing up is incredibly interesting because I mean, if there's one area that changed very, very rapidly, it's downtown, right? Uh-huh. I mean, we're talking about changes today, but just imagine the changes that have happened in the past. I mean, downtown has had a history of incredibly rapid change. If you think, for instance, Campus Martius, right? So the first national bank on Campus Martius. I mean, that was a building that changed, I think, four times over seven decades. I mean, wow. the, the last iteration only survived 13 years. <laughs> so it's it's really difficult to, to think of, of ideas like a collective memory, for example. Yeah. Because when things change so rapidly, um, how do you build that collective memory? So, so it's interesting to see that sort of change in, in the continuum of that. Yeah. And then also, I mean, change and inclusivity, I mean, the, the research I've done is what you really see is that the changes in downtown were usually changes instigated by people that had the land or people that had power. Those were the people that were able to steer change, and especially if you think of downtown and nearby neighborhoods like Black Bottom that is now Lafayette Park. I mean, those those places were essentially erased because they, they didn't have that power to steer to steer change, which makes me think, I mean, if you look at a downtown now, it's not, it's, it's, it's essentially hardly ever been a very inclusive area huh. just because it represented those in power. So, you know, when you think of, you know, is downtown inclusive now, um, it's hard to say, you know, but in, 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 in some ways you could argue it's, it's more inclusive than it probably has ever been because it just doesn't have a very inclusive, inclusive path. So, I mean, that's, that's some of the research that I've done for this book. So I looked at sort of two centuries of, of, of change and really found that it's, it's, you know, it's profoundly sort of contrasting, almost schizophrenic landscape, right? So you have streets that are very busy, have a lot of people on them, and then you turn two or three corners and, you know, it's gravel parking lots. So looking at that change and what the forces behind those changes were. So yeah. for instance, looking at the past, you know, downtown is, is obviously the oldest area of Detroit. Like how does a city that's fascinated with change and fascinated with the future really deal with its past? Because, you know, in many neighborhoods, you can't exactly, you know, you can easily get rid of, of the past. You know, some neighborhoods have essentially been, been completely abandoned, but you can't do that in a downtown. You know, the buildings are too big, the focus is too much. So it's one of these only areas that the city has constantly had to reinvent itself. But here's the thing reinvention by its very nature means you have to get rid of something old. And that's where change and inclusivity come in, is what do you get rid of and what do you build up? And, and and whose voice matters in that conversation, right? Absolutely. Uh, uh, the, the people who 
have been here and may not have as many resources or as much power as the folks who are coming, I think, uh, naturally feel as though uh, these things are being done at their expense uh, and that their voice is not being heard. Absolutely. And to be very honest, I mean, looking into the past, it was shocking to see. I mean, you're right. There's been a, a very long history of people that were disenfranchised that were essentially very easily shoved aside. Um, sometimes it's seen as sort of collateral damage to change, and sometimes you know, even with, with intensive malice, just you know, getting rid of, of African Americans and black bottom to kind of bring the middle class back to downtown. That was a very deliberate attempt. Um, so you're right. I mean, change usually happens at the cost of whoever wasn't able to steer that. You know, history uh, history writes is written for the victors, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so it was interesting to see, you know, who the victors in this case were. And in many cases, the victors were, were you know, the victims of the, of the next era. I mean, these things happen incredibly rapidly. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I've I've only got about two minutes left, but but okay. I, I want to quickly get to you telling us what you think we can learn from some other cities. Uh, you you talk about the history here. Is the history different in other places, and, and can we borrow, maybe, from some of those places? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating question. I mean, other cities are, are doing a lot of the same things that Detroit is doing. So Detroit is, is to a larger extent, than other cities are kind of privatizing space. For instance, you know, if you look at now, sort of downtown, owned uh, mostly by six different entities, that is happening in other cities. So in, in a way, you're actually at the vanguard of this. Other cities have to look at Detroit mm. and see what they can learn from wow. Detroit. Yeah, um, which which I think is a new position for the city, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, when we talk about that history and you say that, that we've changed downtown so many times, and many times it has been sort of at the expense of the most uh, vulnerable. What do you feel like we need to do now to prevent that from happening again? And again, we've only got about a minute now left. Um, just thinking in, in terms of spaces for uh, meeting the proverbial other, right? So spaces where you can meet people that are different like yourself, which downtown is a perfect spot to do that kind of thing. So if you think of spaces like Campus Marshes or the Eastern Market, you know, those are those very few spaces left in Detroit where people of all walks of life come together uh, in trust and, uh, you know, in, in general good nature. Those are incredibly valuable spaces and definitely try to keep those spaces diverse. Because, I mean, the powers of development are harder to steer, but your everyday encounter with other people, that's something you have in your own hands. Okay, Conrad Kickert, Assistant Professor of Urban Design at University of Cincinnati and author of the book, Dream City, Creation, Destruction, and Reinvention in Downtown Detroit. It's really great to have you here for this conversation. Yeah, Yeah, thanks. All right, uh, it's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow. You're going to want to tune in for sure. Attorney General Dana Nessel is going to join us to talk about her filing on behalf of Detroit students in a lawsuit that says they're being deprived of their right to literacy. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.